0: Hi, folks, welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, your host, Sarah Ivory. Today, a fresh look at David the King. In the annals of biblical kings, David stands out. He's a humble shepherd, he slayed Goliath, he wrote poetry, he dethroned his predecessor, and he reigned in Israel for 40 years. His heroics inspired artists throughout history, from Michelangelo to Leonard Cohen. But he was also willfully blind to deceits around him, at times undisturbed by good judgment. He pursued women married to other men, and he was responsible for the deaths of innocents, even in his own family. You could say, and I will, that David contained multitudes. And in a new book called David, The Divided Heart, Rabbi David Wolpe takes a look at this legendary but flawed Jewish hero. Named by Newsweek as the most influential rabbi in America, David Wolpe is also a renowned writer. His look at David is his most recent title, and it's part of Yale University Press's Jewish Live series. David Wolpe joins us today on Vox Tablet to talk about it. Rabbi Wolpe, welcome to Vox Tablet.
1: Thank you. Pleasure.
0: I'm sure a lot of listeners know of David from his slingshot victory over Goliath, Mm -hmm. but they may not know very much beyond that. So I'd love it if you could start by giving us a primer about his life. Who was he? What did he do?
1: He was the most important king, the most important governmental figure. And you could even argue that along with Moses, um, or perhaps in some ways even more, the most important figure in Jewish history, what he essentially did was he unified Israel and Judah. Judah was the south and Israel was the north, and they were always at odds. He made them into one country. He subdued the Philistine threat, which was the constant threat against Israel. He established Jerusalem as the capital of the Jewish people and of uh, the nascent, the being-born state of Israel. He managed to die in his bed which very few kings get to do uh, in ancient or medieval times, having anointed his son as his successor. Um, That's sort of the brief praises of the most complicated documented life in the Torah, well, really in the Bible. And uh, he also is supposed to be the precursor of the Messiah, which means that whoever the Messiah is or has been claimed to be has to always show that they have their lineage back to David.
0: A lot has been written about David over the years, both by uh, rabbis centuries ago and in more recent times. The poet Robert Pinsky wrote a book for Next Book Press, which is affiliated with Tablet, about King David. I wonder, what did you hope to convey about David that had not been explored before?
1: What most interested me about David is captured in the subtitle, The Divided Heart. Um, David is constantly confound your expectations of him just when you think he's a Machiavellian schemer he does something wholehearted and beautiful and then when you're elevated by this wonderful lyrical figure he does something dastardly and almost unthinkable and so rather than arrive at a singular judgment about him I wanted to sort of examine him in all his complexity and accept him Here's a man who, in the ancient world and as a biblical king, again and again listens to women and allows their words to change his life. That's completely unexpected. So I suppose I wanted to take David all in all, but not as much as a religious figure as just a human being and to try to explore what made him David.
0: In your consideration of him, you divide the book into themes. So you have a chapter, David as lover, David as fugitive, David as sinner. Why did you take that approach rather than have a go at him chronologically?
1: The way I came to this, honestly, Sarah, is doing funerals. I know that sounds strange, but as a pulpit rabbi, when I do funerals, I'm always struck by the fact that the person who died was such different things to different people. The children will tell me one story. The wife will tell me another story. The people who worked with him will tell me a third story. And they don't necessarily contradict, though sometimes they do. But when you put them all together, you get a full person. And that's what I tried to do for David.
0: Is there one category in which he most stands out for you?
1: Wow. Um, What is the category in which he most stands out? I think I would say either the complexity of his relations as a father or the complexity and intricacy of his relations with women and also the steadiness of his relationship to God. Those three which are in some ways intertwined make David particularly fascinating.
0: Well, let's talk about him a little bit as a father because he does allow for uh, terrible violence among his children. He sort of steps back and lets them have at each other in a brutal way.
1: He does. He was – I think we can extrapolate from the evidence that he's himself a neglected child and becomes a neglectful father which is a dangerous thing for a king because when there's a lot at stake, it's almost like being a very, very wealthy man who doesn't pay attention to what the kids are doing in the business. And as a result in his story, there's incest, rape, there's uh, fratricide where one brother murders another. And David essentially stands back from the whole awful drama uh, until he can't anymore. And I think that that says a lot about the passivity of a publicly very active man who essentially comes home and closes his eyes.
0: Well, it's hard for the reader of his story to then revere him, to see such lack of agency and to say, well, why should this guy be a hero? Well, yes,
1: Um, and I don't want (laughs) to... I don't want to tell people why they should think of him as a hero, uh, although in some ways I do. And in fact, I, I sent the book to a, a good friend who wrote back and said, love the book, don't like David, <laughs> So, which I understand. Uh, but the the remarkable thing about him is that, as I said, every time you start to dismiss him and you say, oh my God, I can't like this guy, he does something astonishing and the same person who, yes, neglected his family, which, by the way, is not an unusual feature among kings. I mean, look in the Middle Ages, um, or even among moderns who are leaders. That same man also, as I said, succeeds in in anointing his own son and giving him crucial advice at the end of his life, um, and manages somehow to uh, to unite a kingdom. So, it is the double edge of of. Uh, historical kind of charisma.
0: David is often credited as a great poet. It's thought that he edited and contributed to the book of Psalms. Is his interest in verse mentioned uh, throughout the Bible? How do we come to know of that? It's
1: mentioned a little bit in Samuel, especially in his uh, his heartbreaking and beautiful elegy over Saul and Jonathan when they die. Um, and, uh, and we know that when he's young, he's first introduced to Saul, who's the king preceding David. He's first introduced to Saul because he's called into his court to play the lyre, which is an ancient harp, uh, in order to coax Saul out of his melancholy. Saul, it's very hard to diagnose somebody thousands of years later, and I'm not a psychiatrist, but he's looking pretty manic-depressive from this distance. <laughs> he clearly had, or bipolar, he clearly had very dark moods, and David somehow managed. In another act of, of empathy and sympathy that you wouldn't expect, from such a periodically brutal man, manages to to bring Saul back to normalcy.
0: How exactly do we know the particulars of David's life? Where in the Bible specifically do we find out information about him?
1: So in the Bible itself, the the main story of David is contained in the book of Samuel, Samuel 1 and 2, um, which is just a way of saying it's a big book, so it's divided into two books. It's repeated again in Chronicles, but less... um, Less interestingly, in a way, most of the drama is bleached out of the Chronicles account. And then there are periodic mentions here and there about David because he's the representative king of Israel. But most of it is in Samuel, and then there's a little, little bit of archaeological evidence.
0: Let's talk for a moment about the story of David and Goliath. It is the paramount story of an underdog succeeding, winning. Tell us briefly what that story is, just in case there's anybody out there who doesn't know it. But also, what do you take away from it? What can be gleaned from that story beyond the victory of the underdog?
1: The particulars of the story, very briefly, are that Jesse, who's David's father, sends him to give food to his older brothers who are fighting against the Philistines. David goes off to do that, and he hears that Saul's offering a reward to anybody who can defeat this Philistine champion, Goliath, who basically offered a one-on-one combat. He said, rather than fight any of the Israelites who can defeat me, you win. Uh, Goliath is a giant and formidably strong. And David, hearing about it, says the first thing that he says in the Bible. And in the Bible, the first thing you say is characteristic of who you are. He says, well, what's going to be given to whoever defeats Goliath, thereby indicating a level of self-interest that's probably healthy in a king, but maybe dismaying in a biblical hero. And then he goes on to say, because he insulted the king of Israel and so on. And then he approaches his older brother who tries to dismiss him in the form of older brothers. And he says, no. And David eventually decides on his own, not at God's direction, that he's going to challenge Goliath. So he goes up against Goliath. And the truth is, he's not an underdog. Because even though he's a little kid and Goliath is a giant, David has a long-range weapon. Goliath has a spear. And we know even from modern studies in Israel that shepherds spend a lot of time with slings and with stones and can be incredibly accurate and the stones can be lethal. So what happens in the end is David knocks Goliath down with a stone and then with Goliath's own sword cuts off his head. What you learn from this in part is that David, as we see again and again, changes the rules of the game in the way that a true original does. It's almost like as a king, as a warrior, even as a a family figure, David's not playing the same game everyone else does. It's almost like while everybody else is painting realism, Picasso comes along and decides to be cubist. I mean, nobody would have thought, let's go up against Goliath with a slingshot instead of a sword. David does, and Part of his triumph is the extraordinary breadth of his imagination.
0: One thing that was fascinating to me in reading the book was your struggle in a way to justify or to understand some of his actions which uh, seem quite questionable. I want to talk here for a moment about his seduction of Bathsheba, a married woman who he sees on a rooftop bathing herself. And we should mention that she's married. He was married, too, at the time, if I'm not mistaken. And anyway, what happens is he summons her. He gets her pregnant. Uh, he feels such shame over this, especially it seems like over the fact that she's married, that he basically has her husband killed. Yes. How can we possibly uh, reckon with this? With well, these this transgressions? is the, you
1: can't the transgression itself. The cynicism of it, of having her husband killed, um, the whole story, uh, that you can't actually excuse, even though the rabbis of the Talmud try to excuse it in certain ways. But what makes the story more than just a sordid tale is what happens afterwards, which is that when he's accused by the prophet Nathan of having done this, David's greatness is in what he doesn't do. That is, he doesn't say... um, Off with Nathan's head. Um, Nathan is a prophet. He has no power. He represents God. And David does what we would now call tshuva, that is repentance. And he does it because he acknowledges God's sovereignty and his own sin. And in that is a spark of greatness. It doesn't undo adultery and proxy murder, but it does let us know that David as a king is very different from other ancient kings. And that's the legacy you have to pursue. When you have a mixed legacy from a biblical hero, you have to be able to tease out those elements that are inspiring and also be able to recognize and condemn those that aren't.
0: I mean, beyond the actual uh, transgressions, though, one thing that really struck me was his lack of self-control and his voraciousness.
1: Yes. Uh, David David had a huge appetite for life. I think it is fair to say he had many wives, um, and uh, he had many battles, and— he succeeded in um, in extracting, I think, from the kingship all of the uh, all of the juice that one could. So yes, he is voracious, and I think that that again is not uncharacteristic of people who um, who are extraordinarily successful and driven.
0: Do you recall the first time you made David's acquaintance?
1: I remember the first time I really made David's acquaintance. Um, I'm sure I'd heard the name and maybe I'd heard some of the stories, uh, but the first time that was significant to me was when my father wrote in my high school yearbook verses about how David sang songs and was beloved of all the people. And when I saw that, I wanted to go back to the source and see where he drew it from. And then I read about David and what struck me more than anything else was how beloved he was. I mean for someone who as you have pointed out is so varied in his moral conduct he's loved by his the person who becomes his enemy Saul by Michal the first time a woman is said to love a man in the Bible is when Michal loves David by Jonathan Saul's son by the people and clearly by God
0: In the book you suggest that we consider King David as a prototype for King Lear And I'm a huge Lear fan. I love this idea, and I wonder if you can parse it out a little bit for us. Sure.
1: Lear is, first of all, betrayed by children, which fits very well with David. He's this titanic figure, but at the same time, he's a little clueless, um, more than a little clueless. And David also, about the behavior of his own children, he doesn't understand them, even though he is himself this titanic figure, and there are moments when he is as rageful and as helpless and as magnificent in despair as lear is on the heath and and it's unsurprising in some ways because uh around shakespeare's birthday in april was the lectionary time each year when they would read the book of samuel in the english church and so i think that some of david's magnificence and his poetry which of course is echt lear is is lear at its best um was was shown through Shakespeare and onto the page.
0: Besides Shakespeare, of course, other writers were influenced by uh, King David. I mean, there's Faulkner's there's Absalom, Absalom. What I wonder is what piece of art inspired by David is your favorite?
1: Hmm. I mention in the book, um, Rembrandt has a portrait of Bathsheba, and and the moment he chose was was brilliant. he chooses the moment when she gets the note that summons her to see the king, and on her face is this combination of sorrow and slight anticipation and um, and it's painted the way Rembrandt paints that is the dark background and the lit and the lit figure, and you feel all the heaviness of a moment that actually is going to influence all of history, and that that might be my favorite.
0: Are there lessons from David that you've been able to apply in your own life or in your ministrations to your congregation?
1: I think primarily there are two. One is that seeing the different facets of David reminds me how infinitely complicated and layered every human being is and uh, and that there is no conclusions that you can draw that are final about the human heart. And the second is the extraordinary redemptive power of someone to change their life even from the most awful doings into something that becomes important and beautiful. And David over and over and over again um, disappoints with his deeds and then astounds with his goodness.
0: Rabbi David Wolpe, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. David Wolpe is the rabbi of Sinai Temple in Los Angeles. He is the author, most recently, of David The Divided Heart. It's out now from Yale University Press's Jewish Live series, which sponsored this podcast. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. As ever, we thank you for listening.